Well, it's good to be back with you again for the last of six sermons. And I've wanted my sermons to be challenging to you, and I'm certain this one will be. So this morning we're talking about owning a God-entranced worldview in Psalm 105. And essentially the scriptures teach us that the way that you view the world determines how you live your earthly life. The author of Psalm 105 demonstrates that his worldview is founded on a knowledge of the one true, personal, holy, self-revealed living God. How this author believes and thinks and how he acts in this world is founded upon his faith that all things serve this God, either willingly or unwillingly. The author of Psalm 105 has a God-entranced worldview. His view of the world and reality, creation and history, is captured by his understanding of the one true, personal, holy self-revealed living God. Jonathan Edwards, the third president of Princeton University and the foremost American Puritan philosopher and scholar, described the importance of viewing the world the way that the psalmist in 105 does when he wrote, when a person believes that the almighty and everywhere present power of God upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yes, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. When a person believes and cherishes that truth, they have the key to a God-entranced worldview. And so to have a God-entranced worldview means to be possessed by a mesmerizing wonder and delight in God's presence and activity in this world so that all your attention is held by Him. This morning we're going to see that every aspect of this author's historical narrative in Psalm 105 has the intention of reassuring the reader that indeed this world is governed by the almighty and everywhere present power of the one true God. And in the opening sentence of Psalm 105, the psalmist commands us to praise God because in the details of the history that he is describing for us in Psalm 105, he is saying that all things are said to be directed by a God of infinite intelligence and wisdom, a God who not only knows the end from the beginning in all circumstances, but who is incapable of choosing an inappropriate means to bring everything about that we experience. This biblical God-entranced worldview has the God of infinite wisdom presiding over everything that is happening. And I mean literally everything that is happening. And this author is convinced 
that to God nothing is uncertain or contingent, and that whatever may be the result, nothing can happen by chance, but that everything is being ordered by one who cannot err. And when the psalmist here notes the times that individuals find themselves afflicted and in distress over their circumstances, he shows us that all of their difficulties have been appointed by this one true God, who has the power to not only relieve the circumstances of their affliction, but also has the power to appoint their afflictions at the proper time. And so this is the challenge before us this morning. Is our faith really founded in the God-entranced worldview that the psalmist is describing for us, such that it leads us to give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, and make known his deeds among all the peoples of the world. And so this means also that we're going to have to be somewhat selective this morning in choosing which details we're going to focus on, because the psalmist nutshells God's protection and provision here for Israel over a period of 430 years. And so we'll begin in verse 7 by describing the history, and then we'll go back and look at verses 1 through 6, because those give us the reasons for celebrating God after we've understood the history that he's he's presented to us. So the psalmist begins detailing that history of his connection with Israel in verses 7 to 12 by establishing the foundation that God will forever be faithful to us because he promised to be faithful to Abraham. And he says, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. I think it's important to note how he begins here before he gets into the history. He says, Yahweh is our Elohim. His judgments, his decisions, the way that he administers justice among men are throughout all the earth. His authoritative rule and his assessment of persons and situations and events are free from bias and self-interest. He cannot view a situation in error or mistakenly. I mentioned last week that God always remembers the imposition of the obligation he has placed on himself in his covenantal relationship to Abraham. And so the covenant is shorthand for, this is my promise to save you, Israel. The covenant is the preservative factor for all the faithful. When God says, I will establish my covenant, he means, I will set my covenant in operation in such a way that nothing will affect it in any way that could ultimately thwart it. And then as we consider the historical record that he describes here in Psalm 105, we see that that means that God will not allow lies 
or bad decisions or innocent actions done in ignorance or the human will to thwart the promise conclusion of his covenant. He will not allow our deceitfulness, our mistakes, our circumstances, our neglect, our moral failures, or our momentary lapses in obedience to thwart what he has promised to do. Having a God-entranced worldview means that God in his covenant will allow nothing to interfere with the fulfillment of the promises that he made to Abraham. And that God would absolutely fulfill his promise to provide a seed, capital S, as we realize in the book of Galatians, that would come through the line of Abraham that will bless all the nations of the earth, that he stated back in Genesis. And so Jesus is that blessing to all the nations, and that he would provide the land of Canaan as a land for Israel to settle in. Those were his two major promises in the covenant. And so we see that his covenant was an outreaching of grace that would hold and keep Abraham safe even while the world is perishing under God's judgment. His covenant is the way that he graciously protects and ministers to the line of Abraham until he has fulfilled the promise of his covenant. All the things which God has promised he will perform, even through what appear to be tediously long ages of time. And so it is in the recollection of God's unchangeableness in his past, the way that he's dealt with Israel, that we have the guarantee of the Lord's unfailing commitment to us who are faithful as well. So the psalmist begins by describing Jehovah's care for the patriarchs during their travel in Canaan and Egypt. And what is important to see here in Psalm 105 is the author chooses to highlight several elaborate details from those 430 years to show us the intimate way God has been protecting and providing for Israel that entire time. Even from the first, he says, when it was only three families, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that were representing all of the future tribes of his people, when these patriarchs were still too few in number, he said, he was guiding and protecting them. The psalmist says that they were wandering from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people because God had called for a famine on the land. And so during that time of wandering, when they were interacting with pagan countries, the psalmist records that in verse 13, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. And so we see back in Genesis chapter 20, we see God testing and revealing himself, probably for the first time, to an unbelieving 
king, Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And Abraham comes into Gerar, and he tells Abimelech that Sarah is his sister, which was half true. She was the daughter of Abraham's father and not the daughter of Abraham's mother. And Abimelech, as king, decided to take Sarah as a concubine. And the text tells us back there in Genesis that God came to Abimelech in a dream, and he said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And in that passage, Moses recorded, Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Adonai, master, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God replied to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Even amidst the deceitful half-truths Abraham concocted to prevent himself from supposedly being killed, God protects his promise to Abraham so that no pagan king could step in and ruin the plan to provide a seed, capital S, through Abraham. And then as he proceeds to carry on with the history of God's relationship to Israel, the psalmist says, Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. And now we begin to see why the psalmist began in verse 7 with the comment, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. The psalmist records that God summoned a famine upon the land, as if a famine were some person or some animated body ready to obey him. In fact, if you look up the word famine in the Old Testament, this is the only place in Psalm 105 where it says that God called it or summoned it or caused it to happen. And it did happen because all things in our God-entranced worldview recorded in the Scriptures happened by the will and commandment of God, and not by chance, as Jonathan Edwards said as well. But folks, it's hard to miss the point here that God does whatever he sees fit to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, which clearly includes afflicting millions of people of what is essentially the main staple of their diet, bread, in order to accomplish the immediate object of this famine, bringing about the migration of the Hebrews into Egypt. And the psalmist just keeps drilling down more and more into the details of God's providence, even further as the history that he's telling us is unfolded. He writes in verses 17 and 19, He had sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, until the time that his word, that is, Joseph's word, came to pass the word of the Lord 
tested him. And so see with me here, we recognize that Joseph going down into Egypt was divinely ordained for Israel's protection and preservation. Even though the action that initiated sending Joseph there came through the envy, jealousy, and hatred and evil intentions of his brothers, all of which God used to accomplish his own purposes. And even though as the story unfolds, it proves that Joseph was innocent and that nonetheless it resulted in his imprisonment, the psalmist says that God had a purpose in imprisoning him. God used that imprisonment to test Joseph's faithfulness. It says in Psalm 105, the word of the Lord tried him. It's the same word for refining and purifying metals. And so we could ask, how does this imprisonment test him? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 37, it says, Now Joseph was explaining a dream he had to his brothers, and he said, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And the text said, and the scriptures began, it says that they began to hate Joseph. And then he dreamed another dream and said to his brothers and to his father this time, Behold, I dreamt that the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind, the text says. But look at the length of time it took for God to work this out in Joseph's life. Because of his dreams, he rightly expected to be honored and exalted by God. And then he's in prison, even though he's innocent, being tested to see how patiently he is able to wait on the Lord to fulfill his promise. And I thought about that, and I thought to myself, my goodness, do we consider that some of the circumstances God has arranged for us are actually tests that God has brought about to see how patient we are with him? Are we so entitled in our God-entranced worldview that we can't leave any room for God to take his time to bring about what he knows are the best things for us? How often do we wonder if indeed God has orchestrated delays in our plans to see how faithful we are in looking with wonder and delight at what he is accomplishing in our circumstances. And I think the point of the story with Joseph is that the promises brought about by the providence of God are indeed mysterious and wonderful how he puts them all together and works them out. But aren't the means by which he does it equally wonderful? Isn't the challenge for us during our times of trial to be attentive and patient with his providence in our own lives? Well, then in Psalm 105, the psalmist begins to describe how Jehovah protected his people during their Egyptian oppression in verses 
23 to 36, and we'll pick some things out here. There's an important thing to keep in mind here, I think. At the outset of sending Moses and Aaron to deal with Pharaoh, God said, I just want to let you know something here, that the plagues aren't going to do any good, because along with the plagues, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But when the challenge of killing the firstborn comes, that'll be it. That's what it will take for him to relent. And so we struggle with this question, why the long series of disasters in Egypt then, if you know, in fact, that they won't have the effect that you're seeking? And here's the right response for anyone who doesn't have a God-entrenched worldview. We see that even in the delivery of the plagues is the evidence of God's gracious and merciful character toward Pharaoh in that God ever mingles patience and restraint with his judgment. Isn't that true in our own lives? Right before Moses issues the seventh plague of hail, Moses says to Pharaoh the same thing he's been saying. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And then he says that God said that for this time I will send all my plagues on you my, yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. What patience and restraint. And yet we see Pharaoh is still exalting himself and will not let God's people go. And then God says, but for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. But remember, glorying in his holy name means glorying in his judgments as well. When the judgment comes, it will have already been well established that beyond doubt, there are a people who are completely set in opposition to a God-entrenched world view and continue to be unwilling to believe him and take him at his word, even in the light of such amazing evidence that the psalmist is describing for us in Psalm 105. We see here God's grace, because even in pending judgment, Pharaoh had multiple opportunities to see that it was in his best interest to acknowledge who God is in reality. And so the onus to believe always, always falls on the person and not on God himself. And then in verses 23 to 25, the psalmist says, Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham, and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily or deceitfully with his servants. And so we see that the root of the persecution of the people of Israel by the Egyptians 
happens because of God's great blessing upon the nation of Israel. God so ordered the events that the Egyptians became the enemies of his people because of their jealousy and their suspicion and their hatred for Israel and because of the way that the Lord had blessed Israel while they were in Egypt. And then the psalmist lists some of the wonders and judgments which God performed in the midst of the people in Egypt in verses 26 to 36, which become the reason for us to remember to rejoice in God's care for Israel in the first seven verses, which we'll look at at the end of the sermon. But let me comment on a few of these items here in this passage. You might notice that there are two plagues that aren't mentioned in Psalm 105, the fifth plague on the livestock and the sixth plague of painful sores and that the plagues are not listed in the historical order that they were recorded in Exodus. And so the psalmist records the ninth plague first, darkness, maybe because it's the darkness of the heart of Pharaoh that is behind the reason for this complete rejection of who God really is. Moses said that the darkness God sent was so dark you could feel it. No one could see anyone. They couldn't leave their residence for three days, it says. And it just so happens that while Egypt was in complete darkness for three days, the text says all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. While he's judging Egypt, he's providing and caring and being merciful to Israel. Then the psalmist said, he spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their country. The houses of the Egyptians were filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But curiously, on that day, God set apart the land of Goshen, where Israel was, so that no swarms of flies were there, that they might know that he is the Lord in the midst of the earth. Isn't that a good enough reason to rejoice and speak out about God's wonders in this world? And then it says, He spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number. This is my favorite example of God's power in all of the Old Testament. So this is kind of a recurring pattern Moses and Aaron went into the Pharaoh and said to him, If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the people of Egypt as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before 
nor will ever be again, the text says. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, the text says, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all of the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, Oh, forgive my sin, please, only this one time, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And so he went out from Pharaoh, and he pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And then, just to challenge your God-entrenched worldview, Moses wrote, not a single locust was left in all of the country of Egypt. Not a single locust remained. How many people do you think believe that is true who don't have a God-entrenched worldview? It is undoubtedly biblical statements like this that made Mark Twain say, you know, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things in the Bible that I do understand that trouble me. It's because of these historical facts that the psalmist commands the reader to sing praises to God and remember his wonders and judgments. And then there's the final blow. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength, it says in verse 36. But notice how other psalms say and what they say in regard to this last phrase. For example, Psalm 135, 6 and 8 through 9 say, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all the deep places. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. And we can't miss that the next Psalm, 136, says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. While he's judging the world, he's protecting and providing for Israel. As he brings judgment upon other nations, he's merciful to Israel to fulfill his covenantal promise. And then finally, the psalmist recalls Jehovah's goodness in delivering Israel from Egypt, his provision in the wilderness, and his safety in leading Israel. Israel into the promised land. And listen to the ways the Lord God continued to provide for Israel all the way until they reached the promised land of Canaan. He says, He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. Verses 37 and 38. 
The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven, also called elsewhere in the Psalms, angel food. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river, it says in verses 40 to 41. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. And he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. Verses 42 to 45. It's really important to remember that God here isn't motivated to keep his covenant with Israel because Israel did everything right by keeping his statutes and laws. In fact, far from it, what we see in a close observation of the historical record of those 430 years is Israel's repeated failures and grumblings and unfaithfulness and unworthiness before God. Moses rehearsals, rehearses Israel's rebellion to them even back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 9, and this is what he says to them. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't because of Israel's faithfulness, but because God is faithful. And therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. I had to look that word up, stiff-necked. You are a difficult, stubborn, shameless people. You are like rebellious oxen who need to be placed inside a yoke. You are virtually non-responsive to my gracious, loving kindness. And still he fulfills his covenant. Again, remember that God had pledged himself to Abraham that he would bring his posterity into the full possession of the promised land. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 that for their iniquities... He caused all who came out of Egypt to die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. He brought their children into that good land and gave it to them for their inheritance. And Joshua understood perfectly that God had fulfilled his word to them in every respect. That after many years he appealed to the whole nation. Joshua did, saying, Not one thing had failed of all the good things which the Lord your God had spoken concerning them. All that was promised had come to pass for them, and not one word of them has failed, Joshua said. And thus, if the thought had arisen in their hearts with so many dying in the wilderness, is God's mercy gone forever then? Will his promise fail forever? And the scripture answers, no, because it's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18. 
His promises in Christ are all yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And his mercy endures forever, Psalm 136, 1 to 26. The end of all God's dealings with the Israelites was that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. And so his design was that Israel should be a holy nation, loving God from their heart and representing him in the world and claiming the world for him as his own. And even we who are God's faithful children, we need to be reminded over and over again, even this morning, that we have a great reason to celebrate our God and put all, all of our faith in his covenant because God has laid out for us in this historical narrative stunning reasons for us to sing his praises. And here in Psalm 105, after the psalmist had considered the extent of Jehovah's intimate care of Israel over a period of 430 years, he began by giving us the reasons why we should praise him and the things that constitute what that praise looks like. So in conclusion, let's consider the Ten Commends that the psalmist mentions at the beginning of Psalm 105 to summon his people to praise Jehovah after we have seen the reasons in history to trust and praise him. And so he begins by saying, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Just hurl thanks to the, literally, hurl thanks to the Lord. Throw it out to him with extended hands. Just lavish him with thanks. Call upon his name by celebrating his wonderful attributes and character. Bear witness to God's character that he has revealed in history and the way he cares for and has protected Israel all these years. Then he commands, make known his deeds among the peoples. Cause others to know him by explaining that what he does is motivated by his promise to love those who are faithful forever. Show the people of this world that you have observed what Jehovah is like, and there's no being anywhere like him. The psalmist is saying that now that you've acquired an understanding of who God is through seeing and observing how he cares for Israel with all of your senses, the kind of God that he is, make known his greatness to people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works, he commands. If you've been redeemed, then sing it out. If the blinding scales that had prevented you from having a God-entranced worldview have been removed and you've been awakened to fully knowing the reality of who God is, then sing it out. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And we know that every true believer seeks the Lord. So be boastful about his holiness. 
Be sincerely and deeply thankful for him. Honestly, I'm speaking to myself as much as to you when I say, stop being shy about it. Act upon yourself to make your only boast a confidence not in yourself or not in your plans or your wisdom or your brilliance and certainly not in our goodness, but in the confidence of who God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. Make a show of that boast. Be overly ambitious about ascribing glory to him. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually, he commands. And so if your worldview is fully God-entranced, search him out for his guidance and his counsel, for his wisdom. Investigate the direction he seeks for your life. And when you find it, submit fully to it. Seek him because Psalm 3411 says, those who seek him shall not lack any good thing. And finally, the psalmist commands us to remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Everything that he did to demonstrate his power and patience with Pharaoh, which the psalmist recorded for us, is to help you remember and rehearse and recite in your own memory so that you remember his miracles and wonders and judgments that he performed in the keeping of his promise to Abraham and to all those who are faithful. And he says, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, and everyone in this congregation, you who are chosen children of Jacob, remember these things, he says. And so we understand in retrospect that we are praising Jehovah because he's motivated to do all of these wonderful things that he has done because of his loving kindness and mercy towards us. And throughout the Psalms, we always return to his loving kindness as the motivation for his care for us. Well, I love how Psalm 107 ends. It says the godly will see these things. They'll, they'll see the history of God's protection and care for Israel and be glad while the wicked are struck silent. They don't know what to say. Those who are wise will take all these things to heart. They will see in our history the faithful love of Jehovah. The godly, the conscientious, the upright in heart, the wise who have a God-entranced worldview, true believers who seek the Lord and his strength, will see the things that the Lord has done and be glad in them because they will see that behind all of it is the loving kindness of the Lord toward us. Let's pray. Father, what a magnificent God you are. What a merciful and loving, caring, providing God you have always been. That is just a part of your character and your heart. Help us to be more faithful this morning more encouraging to each other to remain faithful.
because of what we've seen and heard that the psalmist has said to us regarding who you are. Father, we continue to lift up your name. Help us to remember all the good things that you've done for us even this week. Help us to be thankful this week as we move into Thanksgiving as well with our families and friends. Help us to be prayerful in thankfulness to you for all that you've done for us and will continue and have promised to do for us in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.